Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray, gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. The Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. And Father, we realize that you are great and glorious and we are small and finite. But Father, you are a, a good God and a gracious God and you bring us to you. And Father, though we are sinful, you have provided a way in Christ you have deposited your spirit in the hearts of those who trust Christ. And you are bringing us into the presence of the Father. Where we have peace. We have calm. And we are safe. Safe from the wind and the waves that uh, storm against us. Safe from the worries and the fears and our insufficiencies and our inadequacies. Father, we can trust you. We can trust you when we don't understand what's going on and we can trust you when we do not like what's going on. For you are a good God and you have promised to work all things according to the purposes of your will to form us and fashion us into the likeness of Christ. And Father, we thank you, and we rest on your promises. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to love Christ and to make him known and to honor him with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses about 45 through 52. Um, this is going to be our last um, time in Mark for a while. Uh, we've come to a turning point in the book, and so we're going to call a quick time out. And we're going to focus next week on Advent, on the coming of our Savior. We're going to be looking at four different passages. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3, which was the first, the proto um, eugelion the first promise of the gospel uh, that even in the midst of the uh, despair of the curse of sin falling on Adam and Eve, the hope of the gospel was given. 
Then we're going to go look at the promise that God made to Abraham. That There was a promised one that was going to come through the lineage of Abraham that would be blessed. All the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Then we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the promise, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise that an offspring of David will eternally sit on the throne. And we, the promised king, and then finally we will go to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, which we, will, uh, we know well that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we're going to look at the promised one that was to come, and we realize, preparing our hearts, that that promised one is Christ, who has come in his first advent, but there is a second advent that we are looking forward to, the return of Christ who is to come, the promised one. So that being said, that's uh, looking forward to, to next week. Uh, but this week we finish up in Mark chapter 6. Now this week is a, really the further continuation of what we have seen the last several weeks. Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. And when you look at it, it was 5,000 men. That didn't include the women and the children. And some people say that could have doubled the number. Some um, people have said it could have even been 20,000 people. But where we pick up is that the, the, uh, the day is drawing nigh the murmur of the crowds that are uh, lounging and relaxing in the green grass beside the Sea of Galilee as the sun slowly sets, the last vestiges of light are seen escaping beyond the Galilean hillside. And Jesus, rather than um, relaxing in the grass and teaching and eating, you see he is hurrying the disciples away. He's urging them to go. Why is that? Because ultimately the disciples have a problem. The disciples have a problem is that they have hard hearts. And they don't recognize what Jesus is doing. Even though the crowds were satisfied with the rich teaching of Jesus and their bellies were full from the extravagant provision of Christ, the disciples' hearts were hard and their eyes were blind to the significance of what Jesus has just done, not as a miracle, but who he is that he can do such things. So what I want to do today, I want to break my normal pattern, um, so I'm going to keep you guys guessing about how I'm going to structure my sermon, but what I want to do is I want to tell you the story, and then, I'll, then I want to give you three points of application and how the feeding of, or excuse me, how Jesus walking on the water impacts who we are and how we live and how we see Jesus today. So I'm going to give you my big idea up front, the grace of Christ comforts and protects his people in the midst of grief and sorrow. The grace of Christ comforts and protects his people in the midst of grief and sorrow. Notice as we begin the story, Mark's narrative that he's weaving this mosaic, he's putting together, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, easy for me to say, while he dismissed the crowd. 
Jesus would not allow his disciples to stay and relax and eat the leftover bread, but he hurriedly forces them into the boat and bids them post haste to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He demands that his disciples leave so he can then go abruptly dismiss the crowd. And the question that we have to ask is, why is Jesus acting like this? Why is all of a sudden he's providing this, and then he's like, you've got to go, you've got to leave. Get in the boat and go, go. And the disciples are like, uh, uh, okay, and they get and they leave. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd. Well, Mark doesn't uh, allude to it, but all the Gospels talk about the feeding of the 5,000, and John probably gives us the backstage look to be able to what's going on here. It says, John 6, when the people saw the sign that they had done, you don't feed 10 to 20,000 people and not be a big deal. This is a big deal that's happening perceiving um, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the one we've been looking for. This is the promised one. And, but the problem is they recognized who Jesus is, but they wanted to do Jesus, uh, want Jesus to do something he didn't come to do. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John doesn't mention uh, the disciples being sent off or the crowds dismissed. Mark does. And Mark says Jesus went to the mountain to pray. Jesus did not want to be distracted from the reason why he came. Jesus came, Mark tells us, to pay the ransom for sin for many. He came to serve, not to be served. The stakes were too high to be um, uh, uh, brought into, to be a freedom fire or a political king or to bring a kingdom to Israel. So he dis, um, dismissed the disciples and he sent the disciples away because Jesus came to pay a ransom, not to be a king. The way the crowds wanted him to be a king. And then it continues in verse 46, and after he had taken leave, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat with the disciples was out at sea, and Jesus was alone on the, la on the land. Have you ever noticed in the book of Mark, there's only three times where it ever talks about Jesus praying. In Mark chapter 1, I think it's about verse 35 or so, Jesus, early in the morning after he had healed all the crowds, went by himself and he prayed. And then Peter says, oh, God, oh, golly, we've been looking for you, Jesus. They want you need to go. And Jesus says, no, I need to go to the other towns and I need to preach and I need to teach them because that's why I came. And then our text this morning talks about Jesus praying, sending the crowds away that were demanding him do what he didn't come to do, and he sent the disciples away, and Jesus went and prayed. And then we see, finally, the third time is that the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus knows the agony that he's about to face, and he says, not my will to be relieved from this great burden and this great pain that hangs above my head, this great death that I will die and the separation from the Father that I will feel. Not my will, but yours be done. Every time that Mark talks about Jesus praying, Jesus had withdrawn by himself. 
Every time the disciples fundamentally misunderstood Jesus and the reason he came, the mission he came to accomplish, and every time that Jesus prayed, he was calibrating his heart to the heart of the Father, to the will of the Father through prayer. Jesus turns faithfully in prayer to the Father to accomplish his role in redemption rather than being pulled under by the undertow of the crowd's political freedom fighter demands that they made upon him. Jesus in prayer refused the acclaim and the praise of the multitude and submitted in obedience to the Father. The divine Son will be a servant who redeems lost people from their sins. And at that, we see the camera pan. And as Jesus is praying, he began to pray. Twilight was escaping and the deep darkness came upon him. And Jesus prayed. And then you see the director's cut. Uh, Matthew or Mark is moving the camera through the darkness. And you begin to see the waves cresting and crashing and the wind is blowing. And it begins from a wide zoom to begin to zoom miles off the coast of where Jesus is praying in the dark, inky blackness, you begin to perceive a boat. And on that boat, some 25 feet long and 8 feet wide, you see the disciples, many of them seasoned fishermen, are struggling, fighting the wind that is blowing in their face. And the, the water is blowing and they're tired and they're wet. And you can see the angst and the frustration and the exhaustion in their faith after they have been rowing through hours of the night when they set sail it was light and their hearts were light from the belly full of fish and bread and now they are tired and desperate and hungry and all they want to do is get to the other side of the lake where they can sleep and rest and have peace from the raging waters that are surrounding them. I imagine if you were to look there and, and uh, this time you could hear some of the disciples maybe saying, why did we even leave the shore? It was nearly night. I knew you had probably had one of those disciples who was negative Nancy who was like, I knew we should never have left the shore. They're like, oh, we should have never listened to Jesus. He's a carpenter. We're the fishermen. We knew better. And look what has gotten us now. Look what happened. We obeyed Jesus and this is what happened. See, the disciples have found themselves in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a predicament, and they're struggling to obey Jesus, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Jesus is on the mountain praying. Notice verse 48. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and the disciples were likely on the water for nearly... Oh, I'm sorry, that's not, I'm not reading Scripture anymore. Um, period, right after the wind was against them. Period. The disciples were likely on the water at this point for about six to eight hours. They had departed nearly at dusk that night. I probably could have done a lot better research and figured out what time of year and what time the sun has set, but I'm not real sure. 
Um, I was a little derelict in my duties in discovering the time when that happened. But it was about uh, sunset, and now it was the fourth watch of the night. And if some of you have a study Bible or or footnotes or something like that, the fourth watch of the night was 3 a.m. to 6 6 a.m. They had been rowing in this wind that was in their face. Their backs were tired. Their arms were sore. They're battling physical exhaustion. They felt overwhelmed in their plight. But they were not alone. Even the painstaking struggle in the dark of night on the sea, Jesus saw them. And Jesus was watching them. And Jesus was coming to them. Jesus saw their distress in the darkness from the mountaintop. And this is a miracle. Jesus is on this mountaintop. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. It is pitch black. They are distance off the shore. Jesus sees them supernaturally. He sees them in their distress and in their struggle. The distance and darkness cannot hide the disciples from the eyes of the divine Son of God. It's the psalmist who tells us this. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall guide me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jesus, who sent them into the dark of the night's in the heart of the sea, knows their distress, and he sees their distress, their struggle. The distance and the darkness could not hide them. His faithful eye was watching them, though they were unaware and they could not perceive him. Jesus saw their distress in the darkness, and Jesus came to them in the darkness of their distress. The wind and the waves could not stop Jesus. The wind and the waves could stop the, project, the progress of the boat, and it could stifle the thrust of their oars, but it was of no consequences to the God who walks on the wind and the waves. Now, I I would imagine when you think about Jesus walking on water, you might think of a calm, um, just uh, waves lapping on the shore, or maybe in your pool in the backyard, Jesus walking across that water. But it's significant. Not only is Jesus walking on the water, but Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of a fierce storm that's coming up. Waves that could be up to five, six, seven, eight feet. They do not stop Jesus, and the wind does not stop Jesus. This is significant. These seasoned fishermen cannot get to... Oops. I'm going to get here, but seasoned fishermen don't get to the other side of the lake after hours and hours and hours of rowing because of the wind and the waves. But Jesus walks across the water. The water and the waves and the wind do not slow him down. 
There is nothing that can stand in the way. There is no chaos that, that overwhelms the, the best of fishermen on the ocean that can stop the power of God Almighty Jesus. You see that? This is significance. This is not some dude walking across water in a pool. This is the very Spirit of God going across the water. Job, in Job chapter 9, we see as Jesus is walking across the water, these echoes of the Old Testament almighty power of God reverberate through our text. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Jesus sees the disciples in their distress and there is nothing, no power on earth that can stop him when he says, I am going to save my people. Amen? But the disciples don't get it. Jesus arrives to, at the disciples and he doesn't do what the disciples expect him to do. Notice verse 49. He, Jesus, meant to pass by them. Take a note there. That's significant. Divine significance is dripping from that phrase. He meant to pass by them. But when he saw that, but when they saw him, the disciples walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, shrieking. Probably some of them were tempted to jump in the water, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is not doing a parlor trick or proving he has the power of God. In the midst of the storm, Jesus reveals his divine nature to the disciples. The words he meant to pass by them draws the reader back to Exodus chapter 33, the very text that Jerry read for us today. Moses uh, has just... Uh, interceded on the behalf of the people. God says, I will destroy them. But Moses says, please do not. And he pleads, and God shows them mercy. But Moses says, how am I going to go and prove to the fact that you have shown me mercy? And Moses says, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness. Here's, our, here's our, 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 our echo from the Old Testament. I will make my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious in whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place where you shall stand and the rock while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Jesus is not passing by them to provide a pick-me-up. Hey, disciples, keep rowing. He's not going to encourage them. He's not going to say, hey, you're lost. You're, you're off course. You're going to Gethsemane. You need to go toward Bethsaida. Follow me. Jesus comes to them in the darkness and the distress, and he reveals his very nature, who he is. I am the God who walks on the wind and the waves. 
because he is the Lord of the dark of the waters. The disciples do not need to fear. Isaiah 43, and again, this is the, this echoing of the, of the nature of who God is echoes through this. That's not it. Isaiah um, 43, verses 2, 10, and 11. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. A couple of verses later, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. There it goes, there it is. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Jesus is showing them in the midst of the darkness and the distress that there is no other God. He is not just another prophet in the line of the prophets. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good man. He is the very expression of God, the glory, the fullness of God. He is the God of the winds and the waves. In the Old Testament, God is hidden himself in a thick cloud above Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning and no man but Moses, who God's chosen man, could set foot on the, Moses, on the mountain. But now that God has come in the person of Christ to rescue the disciples. The God who is majestic and awesome, but unknowable in the Old Testament, is now fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We talked about in Sunday school, Jesus is the way. Why is He the way? Because He is the truth of God, and He is the life of God. The very question that the disciples have asked earlier, who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey? That God is now, that question is now answered in the turbulent waters of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus does what only God can do because he is fully God. He is the God who casts out demons. He is the God who raises paralytics. He is the God who cleanses lepers and calms storms, who repairs the broken, who raises the dead, who satisfies the hungry, who walks on water. The one who now appeared to them in the midst of the storm is the great I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. But the disciples didn't recognize him. And they, verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out and for they all saw him and were terrified. They, did, they failed to recognize the glory of God revealed in Jesus. They thought it was a ghost. And honestly, who can blame them? It doesn't happen every day that you see someone walking on the water, radiating the glory of God at 4 a.m. in the morning in the middle of a storm. They don't recognize Jesus because they weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for them. Why does the text say Because their hearts were hard. Their eyes were blind. Their ears could not hear. 
But you see the grace of Jesus in verse 50, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And, they got into the, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were all utterly astonished for they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. You see, notice what Jesus doesn't scorn them for failing to recognize them. He doesn't rebuke them for their fear. What does he do? He encourages them and he reassures them. The God who had compassions on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd now has compassion on his sheep who don't recognize their shepherd. This is the compassion and the grace of God. He gets into the boat with them and he calms them and they were astonished. They weren't astonished that the very God of the universe was sitting in their boat. They were astonished that Jesus was able to perform these miracles. Not God is with us. They were astonished that Jesus could make so much bread for so many people. They didn't recognize the fact that he was the God who had come down to earth. He was the bread that came from heaven that only can satisfy the soul. Because their hearts were dull and they were obstinate and they were blind and they ignorant and they marveled that Jesus could pull off such a stunt almost. Jesus, and Mark is equating them, they had hard hearts. The Pharisees had hard hearts. And they were astonished and the crowds were astonished. And they weren't getting, and we remember, it, we don't, they didn't recognize Jesus all throughout the book until they further began to understand this revelation, progressive revelation that Jesus is revealing himself who he is. And it really shows how slow of heart man is to be able to understand what is happening. Because if they recognize that Jesus was the great I am who is able to do what only God can do, they would have recognized him in the middle of trouble and stress. But they could not because they did not look to Jesus with eyes of faith. Ocean Park, only the eyes of faith can recognize the Lord in the midst of pain and distress and a heartache. We must have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love. Why? Because the grace of Christ comforts and protects his people in the midst of grief and sorrow. I want to give you my, how do we take this story and apply it to our lives? What are these truths that we can, we can hold on to in the midst of the storm? This, this one right here has hit me four or five different times, the truth of this in conversations that I've had. We, obeying Christ will expose you to grief and to sorrow. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. O obeying Christ will expose you to grief and sorrow. Let me, let me, let me t explain it. If you follow Jesus in obedience, you will find great joy and great comfort and you will get peace and you will get blessings. But you will also find all types of griefs and sorrow that you had never experienced before. Imagine the disciples were sitting in the boat at 3 a.m. wishing they had never obeyed Jesus in the first place and gotten themselves into such a pickle. Why did we listen to Jesus? 
we wouldn't be sitting here. We'd be sitting back and, and the, be sleeping by a warm fire. We'd be eating all of that good food and that good fish. We wouldn't be physically and emotionally exhausted. Obedience to Jesus is not easy. On one hand, obedience protects us from dangers and heartaches and destruction. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor um, stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted before streams of living water. He, his we, uh, leaf does not wither, and it brings forth fruit in its season. There is great blessings from obeying Christ because it protects us from the sin that destroys us. And pastoral counseling. Why, pastor, is God allowing me to be in such a pickle? Did you obey him? No. That's what happens. That's what God is trying to protect you from. Protect you from himself. Obey him. And when we obey Christ, we do receive great blessing and joy and comfort and peace. But on the other hand, obedience puts us in direct opposition with our flesh and with the world. And this is what the disciples are learning now. Obedience goes against our natural sinful flesh. Swimming against the current is taxing. You ever go to Itchituckney? You ever try to swim against the current? You don't do it very long. Why? Because the current is strong and you're not. You ever try to exercise? Uh, spir exercising spiritual muscles is painful and exhausting. You can't build spiritual muscles without repetition and resistance. And that hurts. I go to the gym about once a month. It hurts every time because I don't go often enough. They're like, welcome to Bailey's. I'm like, I've been here for three years. <laughs> Fighting temptation is difficult and it's frustration. It wouldn't be temptation if it was easy. When we obey Jesus, it goes against our natural sinful flesh that craves sin. But also, obedience goes against the way of the world. The call of the gospel at its heart is a call to repent and believe. Repentance is renouncing your allegiance to the world and declaring your allegiance to Jesus. Why would we expect our sinful flesh in a godless world to applaud obedience to Jesus? If the world hates Jesus, why would they applaud us for following him and seeking to obey him? Putting G, obeying Jesus puts us in opposition to the world, its values, and its priorities. Our ethics are different. Our priorities are different. Our values are different. Our worldviews are different. And often, as we are beginning to see in this little window where uh, our culture had reflected a Judeo-Christian um, worldview, as that is radically shifting Christians who are faithful, not just Christians who are obnoxious, because there's a lot of Christians who are just obnoxious and suffering because they're obnoxious. But Christians who are faithful to the gospel are going to be persecuted and hated because of it. It's the very thing in Genesis chapter 4 that um, God warns um, um, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you to destroy you, but you must rule over it. You must fight against it. So when you obey Jesus, 
It's not going to get better. Your temptations and your challenges and your fears and your oppositions will just change. Because your sinful nature does not want to obey Jesus and your world does not want to obey Jesus. We succumb to sin because that moment we think obedience is just too difficult and God is not sufficient and we must succumb to the sin in that moment. Obeying Jesus means I say no to sinful passions and urges Scripture that forbids. Obeying Jesus will cost you friendships and cost you relationships and it will cost you opportunities, jobs, fun. I want to follow Jesus. I want to honor Jesus with my speech and my body and all of this. And people are like, you're not fun anymore. We don't want to hang out with you. You're not fun. And what happens? Your friends stop calling and they stop texting and they don't want you to be around because you're some religious killjoy. No matter how humble and gracious you are in seeking to obey Jesus, you will be called inflexible, hateful, bigoted, and not a team player. Resistance and opposition are guaranteed when you obey Jesus. Don't be surprised. Remember, though, that there is no sorrow or difficulty that the sovereign Lord does not foreknow and foreordain to be used for his purposes in his glory. Here is the promise of God. When we obey Jesus and we face opposition, he says this, and these are the anchors of our faith. These are not just trite verses that we quote when we don't know anything else to say. We know that for those who love God, all things, not just the happy rainbows and unicorns, all things, our tears, our pain, our sorrow, our rejection, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. What is the goal for those who belong and are united to Christ by faith? To be conformed to the image of his Son, the goal and the resistance that the Lord has brought you through is so that you would not look like you anymore. Your sinful world and sinful nature is that you would look like Jesus. Every rep, every tear, every sweat, every heartache is, is a repetition to make you look like Jesus. These are the promises. These are the horses that we ride into the storm on. Sorrow and grief is often the chisel the Lord uses to sculpt you into the image of Christ. Jesus sent the disciples into the storm because the dangers of the crowd would have distracted them away from the mission of the kingdom. See, if they disobeyed, they would have stayed on the, on the crowd and heard the rumbles. Oh, you realize that's the one. And look, you're so close, you're connected. You need to put a word in, let's make him king, and you'll, have, you'll be honored in the kingdom. And they would have missed the kingdom of God completely. But Jesus, in his love and his foreknowledge, sent them into the storm, into the difficulty, the pain, and the agony of that storm. And then he revealed himself to him so they would be like Jesus. And they had no idea. They thought he was a ghost. But looking back, they realized, ah, Jesus does know what he's doing. I'm thankful that I obeyed him. 
Obeying Jesus will expose you to grief and to sorrow. This is not an accident that are things that are happening to you. And the second thing, in the midst of grief and sorrow, Jesus Christ reveals himself. There was never a point where the disciples were separated from Christ, even though they could not perceive it. How often, in the midst of the sorrow and grief that overwhelm us because we doubt Jesus, um, do we forget about that? We forget that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us, though we look at, God can't be here because look at what's happening to me. Cling to the promises. We forget that he has promised that he's working in us and through us. We, he's promised to accomplish his purpose and further his kingdom. Jesus always sees us even when we can't see him because the darkness is too dark and the waves have distracted us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. And our way is never hidden from him. He knows the path that we walk and he's able to help us. His timing is, is perfect. He's never early, he's never late, he's never in a hurry, and he's always on time, even when we think he's a little late. He knows what we need, when we need it, and the amount that we need. Even when we fail to see him in the midst of strong headwinds and deep darkness, Jesus is with us. He sees us in the midst of the storm, and he comes to us, not Often, most of the time, Jesus does not come to us the way that we expect or the way that we desire, but it's always the way that we need, and he gives us what he, we need. He gives us himself. This couple weeks ago, Miss Pat Curry and I had uh, coffee at Starbucks one afternoon, and as we sat in the corner, we talked about this journey that the Lord has been leading her on in this past year of um, losing her husband Dave, a uh, faithful member of our congregation, um, and who had been married with Pat for over 50 years. And though the days that she is going through, the winds are strong and the night is dark, it's in the midst of the darkness and the struggles that the presence of Christ brings her peace through his word and through his people. And through the grief and sorrow of widowhood, she has been able to learn the sweet grace of Christ's presence to her. And she has learned something that she could not have learned in 50 years of marriage, is that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. She could never have learned that with Dave by her side. In the midst of the wind and the waves, and the darkness. God gave her what she needed himself. Ocean Park, Christ is faithful in the midst of the storm to reveal, reveal himself in a way that is impossible if we stood on the comforts of the shore eating the bread and the fish. When the wind and the darkness of disease and sickness, of emotional pain, of spiritual oppression, of financial loss, of loneliness, abuse, and neglect, Christ comes to us with what we need, his divine presence. He comes to us and says, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. 
Kent Hughes, uh, the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, now um, retired, says this, this is how Jesus comes to us, that we might learn the futility of our own strength, our insufficiency, we talked about that last week, and depend on his sufficiency. The very ways that distressed them became a path for his feet, so transcending was his power, his feet upon the waves bespoke his familiarity with their plight. He not only sees, but enters into human struggles. Brothers and sisters, every storm in your life is leading you towards the compassionate heart of the God of the wind and the waves, Jesus. Obeying Christ exposes us to grief and sorrow. In the midst of the grief and the sorrow, God gives us himself. And then finally, God is gracious to us when our faith is feeble. What strikes me most about this as I've been working through the book of Mark is the gentle grace of Jesus toward his disciples. Time and time again, we see how little they understood the magnity of who Jesus was. They were awestruck by his power. They were captivated by his teaching. They were committed to following him, but they didn't understand his true identity, who who he was. But God revealed his glory to them in the storm, and they thought it was a ghost. It wasn't late until after when they saw the footsteps in the sand did they realize who Christ was and how gracious he was. Notice verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Oh, Mark, we have a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He gives us so much grace when we are hard-hearted and blind to his presence working in our lives. We eat his bread daily and don't realize the provision coming from his hand. We wander from the safety of the sheepfold and we follow to what leads us astray. We embrace the comforts and the joys of this world over the faithfulness of the good shepherd, even though those times are many. And we are, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander. Um, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God I love. But Christ is gracious. You cannot disqualify yourself from the grace of God because you didn't earn it to begin with. The grace of Christ is unearned, undeserved, and unmerited. When you came to Jesus the first time, you were a rotten scoundrel, sinful from head to toe. When you're sinful and you're unfaithful and you wander, that does not uh, negate the grace of God. Therefore, we seek to witness the beauty of his grace. Don't allow your heart to be hard and your eyes to be blind. Pray, Father, give me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to love the grace of God manifested daily in my life. Pray that God would open your eyes to his grace. Ocean Park, you cannot see Jesus because often you're not looking for him. Open up the word of God and begin to train yourself to recognize Jesus. Learn his ways, learn his words, learn his heart that you may know him and recognize him and see him. Teach your palate to appreciate the sweet, subtle graces that are expressed daily. Andrew Peterson, I was listening to a blog of him this week, and he says, to say that God is invisible is to walk through your, uh, with the world with your eyes closed. There are times when our eyes are peeled as hard as we try. We cannot uh, see a trace of him. For what we see of him, we don't understand or don't like very much. 
but he hides himself in stories and turns of season. He cloaks himself in flower petals and stars and laughter and lightning and music, all because he is merciful. If he tore back the curtains and revealed himself fully to us in our current state, we would burn to a crisp. He is preparing us for the final vision, but until then, there is much to see. Ocean Park, we need the sustaining grace of Jesus to discipline ourselves to recognize him. But you will never see Jesus if you fill your minds with a steady diet of cable news and social media and sports and music and business and streaming entertainment. It will make you blind to the grace of Christ revealing himself in the midst of the storm. John, 1 John 3 says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the sons and the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. See, um, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we has been has not yet appeared, and what we know, what we appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Ocean Park, do you want to see Jesus? Jesus will give you grace. Jesus will give you grace and comfort you and protect you in the middle of storms of grief and sorrow that we may see his glory.